Friends, friends, ladies and gentlemen, they, there's, a, um, there's a quote um, that I, I think in Australian democracy, in fact, Western liberal democracy around the world, we should reflect on a little bit more often. It comes from a retired Supreme Court justice by the name of Felix Frankfurter. He famously said that the highest office in any democracy is the office of citizen. When it comes to our, when it comes to our democracy, there's never a truer word spoken. I think sometimes we are vulnerable to taking that for granted. This morning, uh, I experienced the most humbling moment of, of the campaign. I, I, this morning I was at Woodville Gardens um, polling booth and I arrived, I arrived there with Ratab and Iklas Akahali. Uh, Ratab and Iklas are Syrian refugees who only six months ago were uh, became citizens of Australia. They were voting for the first time today. They came, they came from a town just outside of Aleppo where their home was bombed only a few years ago. Um, everything they had was lost. Um, they had a young son and they had nowhere to live. They fled to Lebanon where they waited for four or five years trying to find a permanent place they could call home. And it was Australia that opened our heart to this beautiful Syrian family who by then had grown to a, having three children and they came to this nation seeking one thing above all else, the opportunity to have a say on their destiny and their future. And today, and today is, as Annabelle and I lined up at the polling booth next to them, it struck me. Here I was, as the leader of the Labor Party, the alternate Premier of the state, standing next to this beautiful couple who were voting for the very first time, who came here with nothing to their name, and at that very moment, as we were standing next to each other, our votes were worth exactly the same. One of the speeches of the year so far. The election night speech of the Honourable Peter Malinowskis, the newly elected Labor Premier of South Australia. Peter Malinowskis is the guest on this episode of the podcast. It's an extraordinary speech and a great chat as well. Before we get to the Premier, can I just reiterate that Speakola is now fully listener supported. The only money coming in is provided by Patreons and donors. Please help out patreon.com forward slash speakola or speakola.com forward slash donate. Some contributors put in as little as $3 a month. There's options to give more if you wish. And it's the generosity of listeners that is keeping the show going. So thank you and contribute if you can. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Yes. 
Speakola with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to the Speakola podcast. I am Tony Wilson, a head of government. Wow, we've hit the big time. Peter Malinowskis was elected Premier of South Australia on the 19th of March 2022. And a few days later, I got an email from my dad, Ray. He's always on the lookout for good speechy things for me. And he saw an article in The Australian by the literary critic Peter Craven. And it was enthusiastic, to say the least, about this great speech by Peter Malinowskis. He used expressions like mastery of technique and controlled and elated audience like a great ringmaster. And it was such a positive review that I immediately went and had a look at the speech he was referring to. And it really is a gem. Everything from the acknowledgement of country to the thanking of Stephen Marshall, the previous Premier. There was a generous and non-combative treatment of the Liberal Party and especially MPs who had lost their seats. A great ballot box story from the day and a rousing finale. It was just first class and I can't wait to speak to Peter. I mentioned listener support at the outset and there are other ways you can help me out as well as an author. I've got a website that sells books, TonyWilsonAuthor.com and I've also started a thing called a Substack. Some of you in the tech and publishing know will be across Substack. Substacks are a newsletter, a way of publishing thoughts and posts and ideas and putting out articles and and doing regular writing, and I'm back doing it a couple of pieces a week and put them up at Good One Wilson is my Substack. I'll put a link in the show notes and you can find it if you search Good One Wilson and Substack. It refers to the Jilla Mints ad of the early 2000s. Good One Wilson, you're a whip, Wilson. Good One Wilson, it's in the show notes. You can also look it up at Substack. Good One Wilson, Tony Wilson. And my pieces should start flooding to the fore. But now, Peter Malinowskis. Well, this is a first for the Speakola podcast. We've had great artists, we've had sports people, but we've never had a currently sitting head of a government. And today, it's my pleasure to welcome the 47th Premier of South Australia, Peter Malinowskis. Peter, thanks for joining us. No, thank you very much, Tony. I appreciate the opportunity. And is it okay to call you Peter? Is that fine? Of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. Excellent. Well, um, I believe we have a a small thing in common, um, and it's not really in common, but we both played for and love a club called the University Blacks Football Club. I played for the Melbourne version, and, and you're Adelaide Uni Blacks through and through. Absolutely, and, and we, of course, claim the title of the greatest football club anywhere in the universe. It's a self-claimed title, but it's one that uh, we're proud of and I think is justified to behold. But, yeah, no, I love my I love my 40 and I love the Blacks, and it's uh, been a big part of my life. Were you, were you playing in your 40s? You were playing almost up to the time you were a sitting member? Uh, and I've played a few games this year, so um, I've stuck in three games since the election, so not as many as I would normally like. Obviously, work makes it pretty hard these days but I do try and sneak in a game where I can. And if you had uh, is there a halfback flanker who takes exception to some of the Labor policies and gives you a, an elbow and sledges you for being Premier? I, I've, I haven't had any, the, the physical contact's been all pretty standard but I've copped some sensational sledges particularly when I 
missed a shot out in front of goal when I was 15, 20 metres out the other week. So, <laughs> But it's all fair and, and good fun. We're going to talk about great speeches. And, and the Adelaide Uni Blacks, according to mates of mine who are involved with the club, They've got a, a team, haven't they, called the Chardonnay Socialists that are, that are famous for quoting Marx and Shakespeare and other great orators in the coaches addressed? That, that, that is true. I've, the, the Shards can play. They're one of the better sides in the club. I think there's seven teams at the moment. But, yeah, the Chardonnay Socialists, they're a, they're a unique unique outfit. I've played a few games with them back in my, my younger days. But they've got a real unique culture and uh, they try and play up to their name and and all sorts of witty addresses have been given by coaches over the years. So it's all part of the unique culture of the club. Uh, but your team is the scum, is that right? The scum. <laughs> That's right, the scum. And so every team's got um, an unusual name. There's the Bastards, the Chardonnay Socialists, a few that I probably can't repeat. And then, and then there's the scum. The scum is normally the, the team that struggles towards the bottom um, of the club, and but that's a something we're proud of, and we thoroughly enjoy it. Well, I did want to talk about your wonderful speech, your victory speech on the nineteenth of March, twenty twenty-two. This year, I mean, what a day! Can you tell us a victory speech? What sort of thought does that get amongst the hurly burly of an election day? Yeah, that's a it's a good question. Like I had thought about what I would say on the night, you know, a couple of times in the week in the lead up. Um, to election day but probably not as much attention as I would have probably have liked to have given it because you're just so busy I had to prepare three speeches most there are a lot of pundits who were predicting a, a hung parliament so that that was sort of probably the speech that I put into most effort of the three there was the hung parliament speech there was the concession speech and then there was the the victory speech and in many respects I put more effort into the other two than I did into the victory speech but, you know, a, a bit of a thought was applied in my mind and then a couple of notes on a, on a piece of paper in the lead up to it. But then on the day, uh, I was up pretty early in the morning and then, and then straight into it and did a tiny bit first thing in the morning, like before the polls were open. And then the rest I, I made some adjustments to on the night. So probably not a huge amount of, of time and effort in terms of the physical writing as distinct from the thinking about what I'd like to say. It's interesting you say about writing a, a, a defeat speech, a, a, a concession speech. I helped out the member for Wills, Peter Khalil, this year with his speeches, and we also wrote three. And I actually found myself getting quite upset and quite teary whilst writing the concession speech. Did you find yourself actually going there to that moment of concession as you were trying to construct the speech? Yes, and that, that is true in each instance. And in terms of the you know, you, you want to, you, you hope to be able to give the, the victory speech, but in politics, particularly in, you know, in the last decade, you don't want to take anything for granted. You certainly don't want to find yourself in any way being self-indulgent, thinking about victory rather than focusing on actually getting the task done. So, um, but, you know, you know, each speech matters. And I guess in terms of the, the context of the body politic, I, I think each speech that I could have given or any political leader gives on an election night is fundamentally important to the democratic process, regardless what level of politics we're talking about. And I think concession speeches are just as important as victory speeches in terms of that transition of power. And in any instance, uh, in any instance, you, you want to make sure that you provide the electorate first and foremost, um, a degree of confidence about the electoral process itself 
I think that's something that in Australia we all political leaders put a value on and and largely hold up to. And and both parties in your election absolutely fulfilled the the contract. And and you could say that what you're talking about there is, is what was missing in the American election, where where Trump gave a, a far from an, a concession speech, and then you have that uncertainty, and in the end, violence. Yes, indeed. And and this is, I think, something that's so powerful and dare I say, beautiful about our electorate and our democratic process. I mean, clearly there are points of difference and and there are robust competition between political leaders and political parties. But if everyone places an equally high value on understanding the privilege that we hold in able to participate in elections, then I think that ensures the smooth transition of power or in the event that a, a result is simply unknown on the night, at least a respect that the that the outcome will be known in a in a fair and meaningful way. I think that it's just so fundamentally important, and my predecessor and uh, adversary in, in Stephen Marshall, um, I think he gave a good speech on election night, and you know that provided a platform to me to be able to give a, a victory speech without any doubt about the result, and I think that was a, a healthy thing. Well, your speech was absolutely excellent, and in fact, it moved the literary critic in the Australian, Peter Craven, and he's a he's quite an erudite and, and crusty individual, but he, he uh, enthused about your speech. He said it was mild, it was modulated, it had perfect pitch, and at the same time displayed the tradition of classical rhetoric, not in order to showcase verbiage, but to sound the resonance of a deeper truth. He is a very well-spoken man, Peter Craven, but that's a lovely compliment, isn't it? Did you see the article? Uh, um I actually didn't initially, and it was sometime later that that someone pointed it out to me, uh, and I thought they were might have been taking the Mickey, <laughs> um, and I was and I and I was really humbled by by that piece written by such an articulate individual, far more articulate than myself. But look, I did I do think that there is a power to the spoken word, and when you assume a position of leadership, particularly so soon after an election, there is a I certainly felt a sense of responsibility to given assuredness to the electorate that they had elected someone who is hopefully thoughtful and, and capable of giving them confidence that they've made the right decision, giving them a sense that, you know, you're capable of assuming uh, the responsibility that you've been given. And hopefully I was able to achieve that and others are probably best placed to make that judgment. And you mentioned you have only a small staff when you're in opposition and so <laughs> and, and possibly whilst campaigning as well. Did you have someone who could help you out? Did you have a, a speechwriter? Did you have someone doing what, what I was doing for Peter? Um, no, in, in this instance, um, I did it all myself. And I I still am doing it. I, there's someone, you know, when you become Premier, you get access to a lot more staff. And I have got someone who helps me out with speeches now. But even even now on, on certain key speeches, I, I do prefer to do it myself, um, particularly on something as significant as an election night speech, you, you know, I think authenticity is a is a commodity that people want now from their political leaders more than anything. And if you've thought about what you want to say yourself, then I think that that lends itself to be able to deliver a speech with more more authenticity than would be the case if someone's written it for you. So, no, so I didn't in this instance. Um, 
and that that sort of suits me. But obviously, different people will have different styles and different approaches. And so, take us to the moment of standing up. The room, I presume, is going bananas. You can sort of sense that during the delivery on the video that there's a very excited crowd. Where were you, and what was the atmosphere in those? Well, yeah. Uh, look, it was electric. I mean, I, I, you know, things went better than we had been had reasonably anticipated. So I think that lends itself to sort of a sense of excitement from the room. I, I was, I mean, I remember I was walking in with my, my wife Annabelle, and as soon as we walked in, you know, the, the place was going bananas, um, and the room was quite small and, and quite hot for some reason. And I, I remember thinking, oh wow, he, here we go. But at the same time, I had a degree of comfort in the fact that in terms of what I, the next task I had thought about and I knew what I wanted to say. So I think I, I was nervous on one level, but also, but, but no more nervous than you are before you give a speech. Um, for me, anxiety around speech giving more or less is a function of how well prepared I am. So if I'm more prepared, then I'm nervous, but just not as nervous as I otherwise might be if I'm underprepared. So but it was a it was a really exciting point in time. It's a bit of a blur when I I haven't actually reflected back on it too much because you get the job and you're straight into it. But thinking about it now, I mean, it, it was exciting, but it's also a bit of a blur as well. Peter Craven mentioned that it was a really beautiful acknowledgement of country. It was it wasn't sort of the the standard wording that everyone uses, and it didn't feel as though you were rolling it out. It yeah. it was you said you said. I stand here with my feet firmly on the land of the Corona people. And is that, is that something, have you tried to do that throughout your speech giving to try to find different ways to talk about what land you're on? Yes, because I, I do think, I really like the fact that acknowledging the traditional owners of the land before a speech has become customary in Australia, uh, not just in politics, but in other fields as well. I think it's a, a healthy thing. But when it's when it's said in such a way that is is routine, you always worry that it diminishes the power of it and the the recognition that you're trying to provide. So I, I do try and change it up. When I say change it up, not not to make it about me, but just to try and have a degree of resonance with the the audience about what it is that you actually are pointing out and, and seeking to demonstrate. And so I, I think just by changing the way you say things sometimes can prov- provide more meaning and therefore more power. So that was a, a deliberate decision that I that I took, yeah. And then you roll into a, I guess it's a, a point that's in every victory speech where you mentioned the concession phone call. Usually there's been a phone call with the other contestant in the election and you talk about that. Were there any details of that phone call that will remain memory, memorable for you and that you can talk about? Um, well, just that the, the the phone call was made, and the um, then Premier Steve, Stephen Marshall was, you know, congratulatory. And I don't imagine, you know, to be frank, I don't imagine these are easy calls for for anyone to make. And I remember thinking to myself, I, you know, was taken aback by the significance of the moment. It is a big deal. I mean, as you mentioned, I'm the 47th Premier, so I don't imagine these are phone calls that have happened any more than. 47 times so and i just wanted to thank him for for his service and thank him for his call and and as i've said had the opportunity to say to him i'm in person since then you know it was a i thought he handled the the phone call with with class and a great amount of dignity and i'm very grateful for it and you then 
go on to what Peter Craven called um, when has an Australian political leader at the very moment of triumph spoken of his political opponents with such grace and magnanimity? Because you give the Liberal Party, I guess you just talk about their importance to the Australian democracy and you say that the Liberal Party is not our enemy. And it, and it felt meaningful in, in a room, I guess it's a very, very adrenaline pumped painted red Labour room <laughs> at the biggest yeah. moment in, in many years in South Australia. And, you, and yet you say to them, just remember the other side. Yeah. Politics is such a tough business. And, you know, a lot of the, my experience with most people from the Liberal Party, and there might be a few rare exceptions, as I'm sure they would say is the case on our side, but on my side of politics, but and most people I mean, I meet from the Liberal Party, you know, they might have a value system that is in a different, they might prioritise things um, in ways that is different to me or other people on my side of politics. But I don't think any of the values that they pursue or espouse are necessarily bad or contrary to the national interest. I've, you know, so when, when you come to the value system as distinct from the policy, you know, I think it's one that's worthy of recognition and people's endeavour and their hopes and ambitions for the state and for the country you know, are often the same. So I don't think they're an enemy of the state um, or of good people, quite the opposite. Again, I made a conscious decision to say that in that room because so much of um, what people detest about politics in a, in a world that is becoming increasingly polarised is, is a sense that there isn't a common purpose when in actual fact there is. And so saying, not just say, saying that in a room full of Liberal supporters would be easy, but saying in a room full of Labor supporters is important because we need the civility, we need the thoughtfulness in our politics. And, and I think leaders have to show the way in that regard by thinking about how we engage with our opponents, not talking down to people. We can argue with them, absolutely, we should argue with them, but doing it in such a way that isn't condescending or talking down to people. And I think if we all did that in our society, more broadly, not just in politics, and we probably live in a healthier country. Well, I think one of my favourite written lines in a political speech in the last few years was Joe Biden's inauguration speech, where he, he used that expression, "We must end this uncivil war." And yeah, and and yeah. you know that line speaks to the same sort of sentiment. And, and there's a sense also in the next section, you, you do thank the people of South Australia, again, a very important part of these sort of speeches. But then you roll into, I think, a, a beautifully written phrase. And I, I saw your eyes went down at this point and I thought maybe you really wanted to read this to get the wording right. Um, I think sometimes on election nights when governments change hands that the successful party can confuse the elation of electoral success with an inflated sense of achievement. Was that a, was that a written line? And, and how much of the speech yes. was written? Um, key lines like that were written, but most of it was dot points that I was seeking to use just as a platform to, to speak uh, more spontaneously. But that was a, a line that I, I wrote down because I think it's true. Like, you know, political parties aren't supposed to be here just to achieve electoral success. We're supposed to be achieving electoral success with the view to achieve a policy end. And, you know, one without the other it doesn't work. You need both. So, you know, while people in the room are celebrating and, and, and happy about a victory, um, I want the people of South Australia to know that, for me, that's really just the beginning. And, you know, you know in the Labor Party, we pursue power and, and office 
because we want to do things. So, you know, the test the test isn't winning and changing the government. The test is doing things, and that that's a body of work that remains very much before us. So, I wanted to. That was a message as much to my parliamentary colleagues, particularly the new cabinet, a message as much to them as it was to the broader South Australian community. You do a nice little structural trick here, which is to to say that that yeah, winning isn't enough, as you just said, and then you say, to that end, I do believe that we have the policy and the plan to realise that ambition, but more than that, I know that I lead the team to deliver it, and that then that's your little nexus that takes you into thanking the important people that need to be thanked. Yes, and I mean, this is a, I mean, this is actually a difficult one. On a, I found because there are so many people, there are so many people who contribute to an election campaign. I mean, I can't possibly overstate, you know, the number of people that were important. But you, you do want to give recognition to everyone, but you just can't. So trying to, you know, distill that list down is really hard. That that's something I did find really difficult. So, and you don't, and for mine, I don't want to read a list of names. I mean, you could, I could have read a list of names in shorter time than I used to thank people. But then it's just a, a shopping list. I think it, what matters more is hopefully providing a bit of context around the people that you're thanking um, without going on too long. Yeah. And that was a really nice little, you did it usually in half a line, like every team needs a lion and in Labor we have a loyal Labor lion that was for the father of the house and for yeah. for, for Reggie, you, you, I met him in an old beat-up Hyundai X, or, or, you know, like that, that sort of yeah. sense of having, all you need is 10 words, isn't it, to make the thing sort of special, the thank you special? I think so, but you, you know about the big mistake I made, don't you? <laughs> I do. I've picked it up without knowing it. I'm guessing it. You didn't thank the person standing next to you, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, look, I'm still, I'm, I'm still kicking myself. It's, yeah, I feel, uh, I, I'm not joking. It, so what happened? I, I can tell you the story. So, so I'm, um, on, on election night, I just wanted to go back and go through the speech and make a couple of changes. And my beautiful wife, Annabelle, is a far better and faster typer than I am. So she helped me in the in the back office at home after Stephen Marshall had called me and I made a couple of changes. And she that was the first time that she laid eyes on, on the little notes I had for the speech. And, you know, naturally I had her on the list of, um, her and the kids on the list of being the principal people to thank. And, and she said to me, she... She said, don't get all emotional, which is something that I've got a, I've had a habit of doing in the past when I think about her and the children and because they do sacrifice so much. And she quite sternly said, don't don't go getting all <laughs> emotional. Um, this is not the sort of thing where you want to do that. And then she reminded me when we were in the car on the way to the function centre at our Oval from home. So when I'm giving the speech, I, I look down at the notes and I could feel myself choking up when I was thinking about mum and dad. And then I skipped over the Annabelle. I thought I'd come back to it. And then, of course, I, I oh. didn't. Anyway, and I, and I really regret it because if I could thank anyone more than anyone, it would be her. Um, when, anyway, when, so... When did uh, it sink in that you hadn't? When well, did... I, when, when, uh, so when I left the, the event that night, I went home to get preparing for the next day with a few of my staff and Annabelle and I just got in the car together and uh, she turned to me and she goes, so um, you did forget one thing in your speech. And as soon as she said it, it clicked. <laughs> and, uh, and, and and she's the most 
I mean, I would say this, but but she is the most beautiful person I know, and 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 not she's not a person that gravitates towards the limelight. So um, didn't bother her that I didn't. But when she told me, I was absolutely devastated. I really was, and I'm still kicking myself about it. <laughs> Yes, I've, I've had to make it up to it. Oh, well, that is an incredible story. You, you thank labour and the labour movement, and then that, I guess, hooks us into thanking workers, and in particular the workers of the pandemic. I mean, this has just got a really natural and lovely flow to it. Yeah, I mean, thanking – I mean, the, the pandemic has been so all-consuming for the last few years, and there are a lot of people who are still working bloody hard, and how can you not thank them? How can you not thank them? Um, particularly when you see these people front and centre and so close to them. So uh, I did want to pay acknowledgement to them, particularly, you know, some, you know, nurses and paramedics and the like who have been doing it so bloody hard. And so in terms of, of the Labor movement, how did you become a part of it? How did, how did you become a member of the Labor Party and, and someone who can give a speech like this? Well, I, I was a trolley boy at Woolies when I was 15 years old because... I wanted to go to the Royal Show, and Mum and Dad said, "No problems, you can go, but you got to pay for it." So I went around the neighbourhood and put my name down at the supermarkets and the fast food outlets to get a job as a fourteen-year-old. And you know, pretty quickly after that, I got a job at Woolies Mitcham and um, here in Adelaide and pushed trolleys. And I became a member of the union through that, without necessarily being a a unionist. I didn't grow up in a union household or anything like that, but I joined the union and progressively over time I saw the value of the work they did not not because I was anti-Woolworths Woolworths were a really good employer everyone I worked for in that supermarket was really good to me I learned a lot from them but but I thought there was a legitimate role for professional advocacy on behalf of working people just to sort of level the playing field of you know the power imbalance that otherwise exists between capital and labor particularly in low-skilled areas and I saw the value of that work. And then, you know, at the same time I was going, I finished school, went through university. I became politically engaged through that process. And then, very long story short, one thing led to the other. And I I did a couple of things for the union while I was at Woolies, just helped them out on a couple of things. And I got the attention of the secretary of the union and he offered me a job to which I initially said no and then was persuaded to say yes subsequently. And and in that first week that I had that job, I... I knew I was part of something very special and, you know, to find myself in this role now in no small part because I worked at Woolies is is quite a humbling thought that I try not to forget about. I always say that speeches work best when people have got a little vignette or anecdotal story and you used a similar device that John Howard used in his 1996 victory speech where he talked about the experience of being in the ballot box that morning and it gives the speech an immediacy and it really kind of pings. But you, you did it also by using a quote by a guy called Felix Frankfurter, who I hadn't heard about. He how did Felix Frankfurter make his way into your speech? <laughs> <laughs> so Felix Frankfurter is a, is a passed away US Supreme Court justice who, and I was writing a paper some, some time ago about democracy. And I stumbled across his quote where he says, you know, that the highest office in any democracy is the office of citizen. And the point I was seeking to remind people of is that, you know, our democratic process, which is under threat, I think, as democracies had some struggles in, in recent times around the West, that people think that democracy and, and elections are the 
you know, the purview of politicians when it's actually the purview of people. It's their responsibility. And it's a confronting thing for a political leader to say, to say, look, this isn't my responsibility, it's yours. But there is a truth to it in democracy. And that saying, I think, um, that quote, I think, demonstrates it best. And I wanted to include it on the night, and I, and I did. Um, whether I'd have fitted in well or not is up for others to judge. But I, I do think it's a powerful thing to remind people of that, you know, there are a lot of things that are up to me as, as the Premier of the state, but ultimately whether or not they stand the test of time is up to you. And I think that's worth um, reminding people about. And then you get to the big, you got to bring them home. And uh, I thought you did a great job. You, you, you went with, um, I think the rhetorical device is called anaphora, where you, rep- repetition at the start of a phrase, and you went with let them say, let them say, let them say, let them say. Have you got mm. have you got sort of heroes in speaking? Have you got speeches that you yourself have kind of buried yourself in that you kind of have loved over the years? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd try and replicate the the great orators or anything like that. I couldn't, you know, I can't do that. But but no, I do I do think you know, and I won't given my my flavour of politics. Some of these names won't surprise you. But Keating, you know, was his ability to use words, particularly when he was doing things spontaneously, was so powerful. I, of course, I love the Redfern speech where he does do that in that in that speech. But the other one, of course, when you look at more historical things, is JFK was something that was out of the box. Um, um, his speech where he uses German in Berlin is something so special. His inauguration speech will go down as one of the best of, of all time. And I've, I've been to the JFK library and been able to, you know, see that speech immortalised, you know, carved in granite and so forth. It's just... Um, so powerful. So those those two come to mind. But every, I think ultimately, you've, you know, every leader has to find their own style. I mean, you can't try and copy someone else's. You've got to find something that suits you because, like I said earlier, I think authenticity is the commodity that people want the most. And if you try and pretend to be someone else, you're, you're never going to achieve that. Well, with your let them say, I think you tick off probably what you regarded as the four or five biggest issues facing South Australians. You said, let them say economy, let them say education, let them say clean energy future, let them say health, mental health. And then, yeah. a, and then a big let them say at the end with let them say that in this moment, this most unique occasion, that this generation decided not just to think about the next four years, but for the next generation to live out on that truly egalitarian Australian ideal that we care for others more than we care for ourselves. Beautiful. Yeah, well, I mean, isn't that what it's all about? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I do think post the pandemic there is a, there is something special going on in terms of what people's you know they want a sense of well where are we going? You know we've just gone through this most extraordinary ordeal that hasn't ever happened before in our lifetimes, the biggest really shock to the system since World War Two, where we saw the power of of collectivism and working with each other for you know to achieve a common end, in this case saving lives. We saw that work and there there was a sense in a moment that where everyone was torn apart, that common ideal brought together a sense of community. And I and I and the value of that I think is real. And I think people I think it reminded us about what we're capable of when we sacrifice things for ourselves in the name of others. And and that that, that doesn't just bring its own rewards, it, it brings its own fulf- sense of fulfilment. 
that is otherwise pursued through individualism on occasion. So I, I think that is something that exists at this moment. And for as long as that is with us, I think political leaders have an opportunity to, and a responsibility to try and translate that into a policy outcome, which is what we're seeking to do here. And, and I, I hope very much that we take that opportunity. Well, I can hear the eloquence, and you talk about a personal style. I can hear your personal style coming through, and I'm sure you're going to give some incredible speeches over this time of government as well. Peter Craven's probably more eloquent than I am, and he said, in this world of bland ukulele playing and accusations about mean girls, this very accomplished, very traditional speech reminds us just for a moment that we are one of the world's great democracies. (laughs) Well done, Peter. Well, we... well. Well, I, I, well, I mean, um, that's very kind of Peter to write, but the we do live in a special place. There is something magical about our democracy that started through a vote rather than a war. So, you know, he's right. He's right. It is a, a special country, and you know, our, our electoral process, when you even when you lose, is something to to value. And it's a very special country where you're able to abuse the Premier of a state while he lines up for goal from 15 metres <laughs> out. So. Well, don't, don't you worry. I, I, I can't remember the last time I played where I haven't copped a, a spray, whether as a leader of the opposition or the Premier. It's good to know that it didn't change after, the, after winning an election. <laughs> well, I tell you, I'm very grateful to your long-time friend, Clinton Rule, who, who teed you up for me today. So thank you, Clinton. Um, I, I reckon I reckon Clint has even been giving me a spray on occasions when I'm lining up to goal. So even my own <laughs> bloody teammates. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Um, I know you've got such a busy schedule. Really appreciate your time today, Peter. Thanks very much, mate. I appreciate it. A very enjoyable chat with a very erudite man. I cannot believe he's still playing footy in his 40s as Premier. It's now time for Speech of the Week, and I flagged it throughout, and it is, of course, the election night speech of the Honourable Peter Malinowskis, delivered on the 19th of March 2022 in the capital city of South Australia, Adelaide. It's a terrific listen. See if you can spot the exact moment where he forgets to thank his wife. But leaving aside that perhaps significant error, there are very few others, and you're going to enjoy listening to this one. To um, our friends. Men and women of Labor, to the people of South Australia, I stand here with my feet firmly on the lands of the Ghana people. I I pay my respects uh, to their elders, past, present, and emerging. But but the way we pay our respects first and foremost is not with our words, but with our deeds. And I affirm to each and every one of you here tonight and the people across our state that I very much look forward to, for the first time in the history of our Federation, having an initiated Aboriginal man leading our state's Aboriginal affairs movement, 
but also actively delivering on a state-based uh, voice, treaty and truth for the Aboriginal people of our state. I only, um, only a few short moments ago, um, I received a telephone call from Stephen Marshall. And, and um, last Stephen, Marshall, Stephen Marshall's call was utterly generous. It was gracious. And um, it was done with the class um, that we have become incredibly familiar with. Um, Stephen Marshall um, has been the leader of the Liberal Party in South Australia for nine years, um, including four years as Premier, and, and that is a very significant contribution to his party and to our state, and we very much thank him for it. I would. I would also uh, like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the Liberal Party of Australia. The Liberal Party, the Liberal Party of Australia is an essential component of our federation. It's an essential component of our democratic process. And I take this opportunity, I take, this is important, I take this opportunity to acknowledge that the Liberal Party are not our enemies. They may be our adversary, they, they may be our adversary, but they are not our enemies, and we thank them um, on what is a significant night for them too. There are, a lot of, um, there are a lot of MPs and candidates tonight who have not been successful at this election. And in our democracy, that is a particularly, that is a particularly difficult price to pay. And I want to acknowledge all of the families of those MPs who have lost their, lost their positions tonight. Um, Politics, politics, politics is a tough business. Politics is a tough business. And uh, while we are right to be proud of our efforts tonight, we should acknowledge the hard work of others. But first and foremost, uh, I would like to take this opportunity to thank the people of South Australia. It is. It is not lost on me the significance of the privilege and the size of the responsibility that you invested in me, in my team. Which means for all of my MPs tonight, particularly the newly minted ones, <laughs> and I'm incredibly proud of each and every one of them, um, it means that we've got a big job to do. I think sometimes on election nights when governments change hands that the successful party um, can confuse the elation of electoral success with an inflated sense of achievement. Naturally, people of South Australian Labor are right to feel satisfied tonight. But, but true satisfaction for us comes in realising our ambition, our ideal of delivering a fairer, better society and more opportunity for those who need it most.
To that end, to that end, I do believe that we have the policy and the plan to realise that ambition. But more than that, I know that I lead the team to deliver it. I want to thank one of the most intelligent, compassionate, hard-working and reliable people I've ever met in my entire life, our great Deputy Leader, the future Deputy Premier, Susan Close. If we were cheeky, we'd be cheering out Dr. Susan, but that's enough. <laughs> um, Susan, Su people um, may not know, but Susan has been working so diligently uh, behind the scenes, compiling our policy effort, which is substantial. And I simply would not have been able to be here tonight without her. So thank you very much, Susan. Um, in the, the next parliament, in the next Parliament of South Australia, uh, there will be a, a new um, longer-serving MP. Um, it's characterised as the, the father of the House. And um, I do want to take this opportunity to acknowledge the longer-serving MP in our Parliament now, um, an individual that has been serving in the Parliament, I hope I get this uh, maths right, for over 25 years. Every team needs a lion. And in Labor, we have a loyal Labor line in the Honourable Tom Kutzentonis, and I do want to thank Kutz. Um, Tom. Um, I've, uh, I've known. Um, I've known, I've known Tom for a while, but, and we don't always agree, and, uh, and when, we, um, when we disagree, it, it can get interesting. But, um, <laughs> but, but the, thing about, the thing about Tom is that he and I, and like every other South Australian, are utterly committed to our families and the long-term future of our state, and I thank him for his service. To the whole of... To the... To the... The whole, to the whole of my um, parliamentary team, though, I, the, the confidence that you've invested in me from the moment I became leader has provided me with the greatest privilege of my life, um, up until a couple of hours ago. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I thank you for the confidence that you invested in me. To the most successful campaign director in Australia, Mr Reggie Martin. Reggie and I um, met in an old beat-up Hyundai XL, um, driving around visiting nightfield workers many, many years ago, and it's hard to believe we're here today. But Reggie, um, Reggie has been a, a loyal servant of the party for a long time. He's been campaign director for three separate elections. 
He's won two out of three of them, and I say two out of three ain't bad, Reggie, so well done. Um, two. Um, as, uh, um, the Leader of the Opposition isn't blessed with the, uh, an abundant array of resources, so you rely on the few staff that you, that you have. And each every one of my staff have been truly exceptional over the last four years. I thank them all, but they've been ably led by the hardest worker I know anywhere in the Labor movement, uh, my good mate, uh, John Bistrovic. So thank you very much, John. To, uh, to all the volunteers that dedicate themselves to a night like tonight, but also doing some good in the Labor Party, we can't do it without you. I thank each and every one of you. To every single, every single Labor leader in the history of our great parties always always stands on the shoulders of giants. And in the case of the Australian Labor Party, those giants are millions of hard-working men and women across this country. Ably represented by the Australian trade union movement, and I want to thank all of you. I, um, I, it takes a lot of courage um, to represent uh, your fellow worker and sometimes put yourself in harm's way. And, but tonight I do want to particularly acknowledge all of those hard-working people within our health system. Um, every, every doctor, every doctor, every doctor, every nurse, every hospital orderly, um, they've all served us so incredibly well during the pandemic, but a particular shout out tonight uh, to our Ambos. You guys. And Labor. And Labor. And Labor. And Labor at its best. But Labor at its best always always embraces the notion that to achieve the right balance between the interests of capital and labour, then hard-working individual contractors, sole traders, small and medium business owners, then they are equally as important to our ambitions for a fair society as any other of Labor's traditional constituencies. So I acknowledge them as well. To my... Um, to my mother, Kate, um, who's here somewhere, to my mother Kate and her late parents, um, Bob and Ursula, to my father Peter and his late parents, my grandmother Peter and Edda. Um, look, I, they, um, they've um, taught me everything I know and taught me the value of hard work and I can't thank you enough. I'd also like to acknowledge my parents-in-law, um, Rob and Vicky Ann. Collectively, that unit represents um, the most professional babysitters you've ever met in your entire life. <laughs> and I thank them for all their hard work. Um, the friends, friends, ladies and gentlemen, the, there's, a, um, there's a quote um, that I, I think in Australian democracy, in fact, Western liberal democracy around the world, we should reflect on 
a little bit more often. It comes from a retired Supreme Court justice by the name of Felix Frankfurter. He famously said that the highest office in any democracy is the office of citizen. When it comes to our, when it comes to our democracy, there's never a truer word spoken. I think sometimes we are vulnerable to taking that for granted. This morning, uh, I experienced the most humbling moment of, of the campaign. I, I, this morning I was at Woodville Gardens um, polling booth and I arrived, I arrived there with Ratab and Iklas Akahali. Uh, Ratab and Iklas are Syrian refugees who only six months ago were, uh, became citizens of Australia. They were voting for the first time today. They came, they came from a town just outside of Aleppo where their home was bombed only a few years ago. Um, everything they had was lost. Um, they had a young son and they had nowhere to live. They fled to Lebanon where they waited for four or five years trying to find a permanent place they could call home. And it was Australia that opened our heart to this beautiful Syrian family who by then had grown to a, having three children and they came to this nation seeking one thing above all else, the opportunity to have a say on their destiny and their future. And today, and today is, as Annabelle and I lined up at the polling booth next to them, it struck me. Here I was, as the leader of the Labor Party, the alternate Premier of the state, standing next to this beautiful couple who were voting for the very first time, who came here with nothing to their name, and at that very moment, as we were standing next to each other, our votes were worth exactly the same. One, one, could, one could, could sense the, the hope, the desire, the aspiration that their votes, their votes had the power to deliver a better society, a fairer future, not just for themselves, but for their children and their children. The democratic ritual, the democratic ritual is one that we should never take for granted, particularly now more than ever, at this special moment in time, we get one shot to recover from a global pandemic as a state and as a nation. And when we look back on this moment, in 20 years time, let them say that this generation was the new reconstruction generation. Let them say that we took this opportunity to deliver an economy that left no one behind. Let them say that we took this opportunity to invest in education, training and skills so that every young person could fulfil their potential. Let them say, let them say that this generation realised the opportunity of a clean energy future and all the jobs it can provide. Let them say, let them say that we had a generational investment in health and mental health to ensure that when people call triple zero, the ambulance rolls up on time. Let them, that let, them say, let them say that in this moment, this most unique occasions, 
that this generation decided not just to think about the next four years, but for the next generation to live out on that truly egalitarian Australian ideal that we care for others more than we care for ourselves. Thank you very much. Big thank you to Peter Malinowskis, the Honourable Peter Malinowskis, Mr Premier. Such a busy schedule, found time for me and I really appreciate it. Thank you to my donors and Patreon supporters. It is really appreciated. Spicola takes up a huge amount of my time and generates very little of my income. One thing that does actually make a significant amount of income for me is speaking, MC work, author talks, general talks about creativity and sometimes inspiration and you can get in contact if you want me to come and speak to your institution. Thank you David Bridie for the Speakola theme song. We'll have a new episode up soon. I'm trying to find a guest as we speak. If you've got suggestions, they're always appreciated as well. Tony at speakola.com. Might be someone who's got a speech on Speakola. It might be someone who should have a speech on Speakola. So let me know. And particularly if they'd make a great podcast guest, it takes a lot of time to try to find the great guests. But thanks for listening to this one. Until next time, speak well.